Hebrews chapter three, let's look at verse five and six. I'm just gonna reference this real quick. This one's not gonna be on the screen, but it says in verse four, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So this picture that God is like architecting, I'm sure that's not a word, but we're for the sake of this space, architecting is now a word. Um, God is the builder of all things. He is architecting these houses, right? Um, and it says in verse five, it says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So there's a, a difference there. We have Moses as a servant and Jesus uh, Christ as a son. And we are his house. Okay, so who's the house? We are his house, all right? Men, women, children, everybody. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, like we are the dwelling place. We're the house. We're the dwelling place of God. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope, um, I just want to share with you that that's one of the tactics of the enemy is to take that belief of confidence in boasting and hope. He wants to usurp that from us. He wants to take your confidence, that, that idea that you are a son or you are a daughter of God, that you are a part of the family of God. If you've said yes to Jesus in the room, you've been grafted into the family of God and the enemy wants to take that confidence that you are a son or a daughter away. If he can shake your confidence, then he can, uh, he can get you to question the very, the very essence of your identity. I've got two boys and one girl. If, uh, if anybody were to go to them and go, you are not a son, you're not a daughter of Brent and Skye. That's, those are not your parents. You're not, that's not your, you're not their children. They're gonna laugh in their face. Why? Because they're confident that they are my children. They look like me. They act like me. Their personalities are like me and my wife. And, and, and we didn't like make them that way. It just happens. It's DNA. We're all intertwined and interconnected. They know that I am their father. It's confident then why in the world, whenever we mess up, do we begin to question who we are? Not one time when my children have messed up have they come to me going, oh, shoot, I'm not a son anymore. Oh, I'm not a daughter. Oh, no. They know who they are. They're confident in that. The enemy wants to make you think that your behavior or the modification of your behavior, how good you are, is whether or not you're a son or a daughter. Why don't we just receive this morning confidently that we're sons and daughters of God? If you said yes to him, I don't care what the roller coaster of your life looks like. I don't care how bad you are or how good you are or where you might find yourself on the sin scale today. If you've said yes to Jesus, receive this morning confidently that you are a son. Receive this morning confidently that you are a daughter. Boast in that hope. 
that you know where you're going. You know where your eternity lies. You know that God, as a loving father who gives good gifts, loves you and longs to be with you, so much so that he sent Jesus. That's what this whole book of Hebrews is about. It's about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, that he lived this perfect, sinless life and died on the cross for our sins so that we could get back into community with a loving God who wants to be with us regardless of our performance. That's powerful. Confidence comes in that. So watch this. My handwriting is amazing, okay? So I'm just gonna go ahead and get that out of the way. Um, I'm gonna take some notes real quick. It says, um, Moses faithful in all God's house as a servant. Okay, so watch this real quick. All right, so from the Old Testament, I just said we're God's house, right? Like that's, that we are God's house. From the Old Testament perspective, God's house was also known as Israel. The nation of Israel was known as the place where God set up camp. He, it was the dwelling place of, of God. Israel was God's chosen people, a chosen nation. In, um, in 1 Peter 2, it says that we are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood. And then in um, Ephesians chapter 2 and in Romans 11, it says that everyone who says yes to Jesus gets grafted in to Israel as God's house. So all of us, even, even though you're not from Jewish descent, you may, not be, you're not, you may not have Jewish blood in you, you may not have the Jewish descent in you, but what you are is you are adopted in, you are grafted in, you receive full sonship, full daughtership as a part of the family of God. You are now a part of the chosen nation of Israel. Now, um, that's interesting, that word, uh, Israel, um, just a quick little history lesson if you don't know where that came from. Um, so in Genesis 33, uh, 34, 35, like that section right there at the beginning of your Bible, you don't have to turn there because I'm, I'm not gonna actually go there and, and read from it. I'm just gonna make reference to it. So if you wanna go back later and spot check me, make sure my facts are right, that's cool. I totally embrace people studying. That's a good idea. You should read the Bible. Um, so in Genesis 33 through 35, there's a guy by the name of Jacob, and Jacob, um, the, the name Jacob means to grab the heel. If your name is Jacob in here, I'm sorry. But that's what your name means. It means you're a heel grabber. Now, when Rebecca, Jacob's mom, had, uh, she had twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau came out first, Jacob came out second, and Jacob was hanging on to Esau's heel. Now, she might have thought that was funny or cute or, or whatever, and I don't think it was necessarily intentional, but she named him that. Esau means Harry. <laughs> and uh, if your name's Harry, I'm sorry. Jesus loves you. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so she might have, I don't know, just 
thought that was cute or, or whatever, but literally the name heel grabber is also synonymous with this idea that you are deceptive. It means to supplant, to, to come up under something with intention to undermine it, to, to mess it up. And so literally what Jacob's mom, Rebecca, did in that statement of naming him Jacob, she put a identity on him as a deceiver. Now, if you read through um, Genesis and you read the stories of Jacob, you see where he steals a birthright and where he steals a blessing and he does this mischievous stuff to get this birthright and this blessing and so on and so forth. He becomes known as someone who undermines, as a deceiver. Have you ever lived up to a name that someone's given you? Maybe your family said you weren't the sharpest tool in the shed. Maybe they said you weren't the, the smartest in the class or you, you're not very gifted or you're not very whatever. You're not this, you're not that. And you said, you're darn right I'm not. I'm gonna make sure everybody knows that. And you begin to speak that over yourself. I can see Jacob growing up going, well, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm a deceiver. I guess that's me. I guess that's what, who I am. I guess that's what I do. I might as well be good at it. You know what I'm saying? If I'm gonna have this name, I might as well be good at it. How many times unknowingly do we get an identity placed over us that God never intended us to have and we live up to it? Sometimes we can make our own self-fulfilling prophecies, right? Um, so, Fast forward to Genesis 33, and in this story, Jacob wrestles with God. They wrestle through the night. Morning comes up. God says they're, they're uh, striving together, and, and God says, it's morning time, let me go. Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And God says, okay, I'm going to bless you. He changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Israel. The word Israel, it means to struggle with God. To struggle with God. In other words, uh, it means to fight, to battle, to struggle with God. It can also mean God fights for you. Now think about that for a minute as a father to a son. When I think of my children, my two boys and one girl, there are days that I struggle with them. There are days that I fight with them. There are days where we get on each other's nerves and it is a striving to exist in the Bennett household. However, there are also days where I fight for them. I don't care if I'm fighting with them or not, there will never be a day where I'm not going to fight for them. As a father, as long as there's breath in my lungs, I'm going to fight for my children. If you're a dad in the room, you understand that concept. So it's not hard to get the idea of God struggling with Jacob, but yet also God fighting for his people. So you see what happens there is that Jacob experiences a name change, an identity shift, he goes from the supplanter, the, the deceiver, to I'm going to struggle with God and God is going to fight for me. 
And lo and behold, the entire nation became known as Israel. Now, if you look at Israel's history, they live up to that as well, right? They fight with God back and forth, and God fights for them over and over again. That's powerful, right? So what's crazy about this is when you fast forward to Genesis 35, Jacob comes to another place, and he has this interaction with God. He's talking to God, and God says, hey, Jacob, remember, I'm renaming you Israel. This is now your name. Your name is Israel. And then the last half of chapter 35 in Genesis, Jacob's wife, Rachel, has a son. And he, uh, as, as she is having this child, she begins to die. Childbearing was rough back then, didn't have anesthesia and doctors and all that fun stuff. And it says, literally in the scripture, like the midwife, as the baby is coming out, the midwife is observing that the life of Rachel is going away from her. And she tells Rachel, you have a son. This is a blessing. You have another son. To have a boy in Jewish culture was a really big deal. And so she says, this is a blessing. You have another boy. And it says, as she is literally, as her life is leaving her, she names him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. The very next verse, it says, but Jacob... Israel named him Benjamin, which means son of my good fortune. Now, you see what happened there? Jacob had received a name change from his father, an identity shift from his father. He had grown up being called heel grabber, deceiver, living up to that. He comes in the room and sees that his wife has passed and that she has named him son of my sorrow, and he goes, oh no, 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 no. My son is not going to grow up with that name. My son is not going to grow up with that identity on him. Could you imagine being the child that grew up with the name son of my sorrow? Growing up going, well, what happened to you? Why, why was your name son of my sorrow? Well, I, I guess I killed my mom. And then all of a sudden, the identity of death just comes all around him he grows up and then kids are like man every everything you touch dies everything around you there's just death you see Jacob had encountered a name change by his father an identity shift by his father and he said my son's not going to grow up like that he's going to be called the son of my good fortune you see the reason why it's important that we must know what God says about us as fathers is if we don't know what God says about us as fathers, then how can we give away what we do not have? If I can't hear what God says about me in confidence and hope, then how in the world can I give you something, something that I don't have? How can I sell a gospel that I'm not buying? Friends, the only way as we are in a messy culture, men in the room, it is our responsibility to speak life and identity over our children. And I'm not ta just talking about your biological kids. I'm talking about men in the room that are spiritual fathers, men in the room that are mentors, men in the room that are uh, leaders of businesses, leaders in this community, 
Men in the room that have people that are looking to them for answers. It is your responsibility as a follower of Jesus to receive his name for you, his identity for who you are so that you can receive that and then give it away. But if you don't receive from him, you can't give it away because you don't know. If Jacob had never been changed to Israel, then he probably wouldn't have named Benjamin, Benjamin. He probably would have been like, I'm still a deceiver. I guess I'm gonna continue to do that. You see, we have to receive a name change from our father. We have to receive an identity shift from our father. And then when we do, it positions us to stand confidently in who we are so that we can give away who he says my son is. So when my son comes in beating himself up, I don't go, yeah, man, I'm there with you, buddy. My life is terrible. I don't like myself. I don't like my job. I'm struggling, man. I know. Let's, let's, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, let's do that. No. As I receive from the Lord who I am, my son, my daughter comes in beating themselves up. I can speak who they really are and they'll buy it. You see, kids are intuitive, right? If you try to sell something you're not buying, they'll see through it. You try to tell them who they are, but you're not who you are, and they'll go, nah, I'm not buying that. It's so important to hear from the Father what he says about you. What's mind-blowing about the end of that in, verse, uh, in, in Genesis 35, after Jacob has this interaction with God, reminds him of the name change. It says, Jacob named that place Bethel. Bethel. You know what the word Bethel means? God's house. God's house. So you see, friends, that's where our identity is found. It's wherever God's presence is. Our identity is found in God's house. Newsflash, who's God's house? You, me, we are God's house. If you wanna know what God says about you, Don't go ask your friend. Don't YouTube a really cool sermon. If you want to know what God says about you, go sit by yourself. Get a notebook out and say, God, who do you say that I am? Don't let anybody else speak into you until you first hear from your dad. The problem with our culture today is that we want everybody else to like us and affirm us and tell us who we are, and therefore we don't have a need for what our dad says about us because we're constantly trying to fill it with other stuff. If you really want to know who you are, like Josh said earlier, strip all that stuff away. Strip father, strip... um, um, employee, son, like, like to, to cut it all off. Everything that you think you know about yourself and sit by yourself and say, God, you need to tell me who I am. And I'm gonna tell you, you cannot be a father without first being a son. It's biological, right? You cannot be a father without first being a son. You cannot be a good employee without first being a son. You cannot be anything else without first learning how to submit as a son, as a daughter, under the lordship of your father, God. And when you submit to that, then 
he says, all right, now let's add some adjectives. Let's add some more descriptors. So you see, that's why it's important for us to recognize that we are God's house. We strive with God. We are Israel. We are his chosen. We are grafted in. That passage goes on and uh, it talks about, check this out, um, the Old Testament example is Moses, right? It says Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. Catch that. Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. And it says he, the point of him being a faithful servant in God's house was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, okay? So what Moses did is that he brought a testimony of, I'm not gonna have enough room, P-R-O-P-H, let's call it that. A testimony of a prophetic word. That prophetic word was that something better was coming. You see, God doesn't just want us to exist simply as servants. The word servant there in, uh, in the original Greek, it means that you're willing to give yourself over. It just means you have a willing heart, okay? So Moses in the Old Testament, it says in Hebrews 11 that the patriarchs of the faith, Moses, Abraham, uh, uh, fill in the blank, all the other ones that you read from the Old Testament, it says, that their faith was accredited to them as righteousness, which means if Jesus would have showed up during Moses' day, then he would have accepted Jesus and followed him. But because Jesus showed up hundreds and hundreds of years later, his faith, what God gave him, planted in him, was accredited to him as righteousness, meaning that he was in right standing with God because he had a faith in something that he could not see. He was also a faithful servant, so he was doing his job at that point in history. Now that's great for the Old Testament. However, it says, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. In verse six it says, but, but there is a, at the beginning of verse six, a big but. Y'all can laugh at that. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So the New Testament example is Jesus, and he is a faithful son. Now, we know because of his perfect, sinless uh, life and death on the cross. It says we are his house, right? So not only that, we are invited in to the family of God when we say yes to Jesus. You become a son, you become a daughter of Father God. You get chosen, grafted in. So see, the point of this recognizing that we are God's house is not just to be a servant in the house. The point is to be a son and a daughter in the house. The point is to recognize that you have ownership in the house. This is like you have full identity in the house. My kids are not worrying about if they're gonna get kicked out or not. 
My kids are not going like, dude, what, what are we going to do? Like, I might not have a roof over my head tomorrow. No, as long as I'm in their house, they're in their house. Now, when they're 18, 19, 20, it's going to be a different conversation. You know what I'm saying? Get a job. Go support your mom and dad. Come on. Play in the NBA. That's my son's dream. Let's do it. Come on. I'm believing for it. Right? But the point, like being a faithful son, God doesn't want us just to be servants. Catch this. Servants work for God. Sons, daughters work with God. Servants work for God. Sons and daughters work with God. There's a difference. When we're building a house, we're not the hired servant building the house. God comes to us as a father and says, hey, can we build today? And if I say yes, then me and him as a son join in a partnership of building his house. What's his house? I am. What's his house? You are. He's inviting me to interact on a relational level with his church, with his sons and daughters, to build up his dwelling place in you and in me. When I interact with you as a son of the king, then I have something to give away that makes sense, that's valuable. If I'm acting as a servant, that's fine, but I'm not giving you the whole truth. I'm just working to try to get something. Right? See, servants have relinquished rights. That's what servants do. They're they're willing to give over their rights so that the master can tell them what to do. God doesn't want just servants. You see, sons exercise rights through intimacy. How do me and my son and my daughter and my other son, how how do we get close? We snuggle up together. We spend time together. Through intimacy, we get to know each other. We get to grow together through this relational thing that God designed. He designed this father-son, father-daughter type relationship so that I can see how my father God interacts with me. Now listen, it just like in scripture, it says if I'm broken and I know how to give good gifts, what about the father in heaven? He knows how to give better gifts than I do. So if I long for a relationship with my children, how much more does God the father long for a relationship with you? But if you never embrace your sonship, your daughtership, your identity as somebody grafted into the family, then how in the world can you expect to do anything, quote unquote, for God because you're always working for his approval? Well, guess what? Sons are already approved. Daughters are already approved. My kids don't have to do anything to be my my children. They are my children. Amen. See, that's that's the point, is that God wants us to get past this part. Do we have to go through this? Yes, we do. You see, my kids didn't get a choice (laughs) who their dad was. Bless their hearts. We do get a choice to be adopted into this family. And we only enter it through the servant road. When we come to that place where we bow our head and bend our knee and we go, God, I'm a mess and I don't know what else to do. I need Jesus to fix all this. I'll do whatever you say, God. 
I'm all in. I've tried other ways and they don't work and I don't know what to do, God. Here it is. You're giving your will over to God the Father. When you do that as a servant, God says, yes, that's what I'm looking for. Paul says, I've become a slave to righteousness. Literally, I've given my rights over to the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ so that I can recognize my sonship. So now why am I going back here? You know why I go back to servanthood? Because my performance matters in my head. Every time I screw up, it's like tick marks, right? I'm like keeping score. Every time I mess up, I'm like, shoot, I messed up today. Oh, I messed up twice today. No, messed up again. Dang, I'm, sli- I'm not a son anymore. <laughs> I'm sliding back into this. Dude, I got to do something for God. Maybe if I can go for a sinless streak for like 24 hours then maybe God will be okay with me. Maybe if I can stretch it to a couple days, maybe if I read like all the New Testament, what if I do that? You think God will really like me then? That's working for approval. When as a son and a daughter, God's saying, hey, get past that part. You've given your will over to me. Now believe it, act like it. Confidently stand in the fact that you're a son and a daughter. It is a tactic of the enemy to keep you in this performance mindset. And as long as you stay there, you will experience things of God, but they'll be for other people and not for you. Are people going to get saved? Yeah, they are. Are miracles going to happen? Of course they are. Why? Because God's God. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you're participating or not. God is God and he does awesome stuff. As a servant, you get to participate in that. But when it's done, it's done for other people because you're a servant. Sons get to participate and receive from God the benefit of miracles, the benefit of wisdom, the benefit of these things because you're not working for him. You're going up to your dad and saying, can we build today? Can we do something today, God? Can I please be a part of this thing? I wanna be with you. I wanna be on the track with you. I know that my performance doesn't matter because you love me regardless of who I am and what I do. God, I love you so much. I just wanna be in whatever thing you're doing. Can we do something today, dad? That's my son. Every time I get home from work, he's like, hey, I wanna play you one-on-one. Come on, he's six. I'll take you. Come on, I wanna play you one-on-one. Every day, I can tell him no a hundred times and every day he's like, you wanna play? Come on, you want what you got? He talks junk. He knows his identity. That's what we gotta get to. But if we're always living for working for him, we'll never get there. We'll never get there. Lastly, I just want to kind of capstone this for just a minute. Anytime you're building something, there's always tension. I've been building, my wife wanted a a six-dresser drawer system to go under our bed. And I like building, like I'm, I, I'm, I'm fairly handy and it's fun. I like doing that kind of stuff. And, um, and so her and I have been working together and lo and behold, you know, like anytime you're building something, tension comes. Anytime you're trying to build a business, tension comes. Anytime you're trying to build a family, tension comes. Anytime you're trying to do something, tension comes. Why does it come? Because the world is the way it is, y'all. People are who they are, and we are messy people. So when we're trying to build something, there's always tension, good, bad, all that kind of stuff. So watch this. 
Look at um, Hebrews chapter 12 with me. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, let's look at um, verse 5. It says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? Hang on that just one second. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? That word forgotten literally means to take something and to put it away from yourself and then it becomes hidden. Have y'all ever lost your car keys? You know, like, like you have this one place where you always put your car keys and you hang them there every day and then one day something's going on and your mind's a little scattered and you put your car keys somewhere else and then you go away and you come back a few hours later and you're like, all right, I gotta go. Uh, honey, have you seen my keys? Where's my keys? You start interviewing your kids. You start grilling them. Where's my keys, kid? What'd you do with them? And then you start tearing the house up, right? And you're, you're like looking everywhere and you don't know where they are. You're freaking out. And then you find them in your shoe. You know what I'm saying? Like you find in some weird place, right? That's kind of the imagery when it says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? What that means is that literally it went away from you and you don't know where it is. You see, that's what happens to us. When we're walking through our life, intention comes. Our job gets messy. Our life gets messy. Our relationship, our marriages, whatever get messy, all of a sudden our identity as a son and a daughter falls out of our pocket somewhere in the middle of life. And we're walking down the way. And then all of a sudden the enemy starts speaking lies to you and calls you Jacob. He calls you heel grabber. He calls you deceiver. He calls you screwed up, messed up, broken. And all of a sudden you're like, oh shoot, that's, I don't think that's me. And you start looking around for your identity and you're like, dude, I need my identity right now. Where, where'd I put it? Where'd I put it? What happened? Oh my goodness, what's going on? And you, it fell out somewhere. You traded it in somewhere and you can't find it. Why? Because life got messy. You began to question who you were because your life was messy. Guess what? Followers of Jesus in the room, your life is messy. That's okay. That's all of us. That's the broken world we live in. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation? The word exhortation is the same word as when uh, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the comforter. It means to draw in close so that you can receive comfort. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, did your identity fall out of your pocket and now when you need something to be drawn in close, you don't know where it is because it's been hidden from you. Maybe it's because you were trying to find your identity in something else. In Psalm 119 verse 11, I think it is, it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Friends, what would happen if we started actually taking that verse at face value and we started taking the words that Jesus says about us through his word and through our time with him, alone with him? It, take a journal, write stuff down. What if we started taking that stuff and putting it in our heart? like in the confines of who we are. And anytime the enemy tries to tell you you're a deceiver, you're broken, you're whatever, you stuff your heart so full of the words of God that there's no room 
for the words of the enemy. So when the enemy comes to you and says, you're a deceiver, you're broken, and you look at your heart and it's like busting out of the word of God, it's like so full, you're going, oh, sorry, dude, no room. It's all full of the word of God hidden in my heart. Why? So that I don't mess up. So that I don't miss the mark. Did you know that missing the mark just doesn't mean that you give in to that addiction or that familiar sin or that thing? Did you know missing the mark could also be receiving a broken identity from the enemy? Because if you're not stepping into the fullness of who he says you are, you're gonna miss the mark because you're not confident and you don't have hope. Have you forgotten the exhortation? Hmm. He goes on, I just want to read this one part and then we're going to be done, okay? We're going to do an activity together. It's going to be awesome. In verse um, 11, it says this, chapter 12, verse 11. It says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, friends, part of what we're experiencing is called the discipline of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord. Now, that's, that's a messy word, right? We think about discipline, sometimes that thought can get messy. But literally, what the word discipline means is that, like, picture God as an architect, and he draws up this master plan of a house that he wants to build, and it has your name on it. Now, does God build crappy houses? No, he does not. God builds Taj Mahal's. God builds Biltmore Estates. That's what God builds. And when God sat down to draw up the architectural plan of your life, it was not a shack. It was not a lean-to. It was an amazing architectural advancement that had never been seen before on this planet. And he sat down and he drew up this architectural drawing and he slid it across the table to you. And he says, look at that. That is what discipline is. Discipline means that there is a framework that God designed us to operate in. He slides it over to us and we go, whoa. Do you think God does intricate things? Of course he does. Go look outside at one of those trees before you leave. Just take a leaf off that tree and look at it and go, oh my goodness, take your hand and just look at the intricacy that God has designed just in one finger of who you are and realize he makes amazing things and he wants to build, he wants to architect a house out of your life that looks amazing to every single person that you come into contact with. I'm not talking about material possessions. I'm not talking about your job. I'm not talking about your identity as a husband, as a wife, as a whatever. I'm talking about he wants to create something beautiful because he stinking loves you. He's that good. So what's discipline? Discipline is when we actually believe and receive who he says about us and we operate within that framework. When the enemy comes up to you and says, hey, do you want to go do this? And you say, no, sir, this is what I'm building. I'm doing a good work right here and I can't come off this wall. I'm working here with my dad. We're building something amazing. Can you not see it? 
There is an arrogance. When it says boasting and hope, the word boast literally means arrogant. There is a boasting. When the enemy tries to come to you and you go, do you see this? You can't touch this because my dad is an amazing architect and he makes great things. There is a confidence that the Lord gives you when you actually receive how amazing you are as a good creation, loved by a good God. And somewhere along the way, sin fell into you and you inherited the sin of Adam. When you were born, you had it on you. You had a curse on your life from the moment you came out of your mother's womb. You were broken. But God said, I want to fix that. That's an amazing creation. I'm going to send my son Jesus and I'm going to take care of it. But we don't believe that. And so we ho-hum walk around this planet acting like we're a shack. When God looks at you, he sees an amazing, beautiful drawing, beautiful building that he's building up. If we could just see with his lens, I swear our life would change. Our life would change. For a moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. You know why discipline seems painful? When God slides that blueprint over to you, you know why it seems painful? Because as a follower of Jesus, your spirit is made new. It's alive and well, but your body and your soul are unredeemed. How do I know that? Cancer still exists. Sickness still exists. You have depression. You have anxiety. You have unholy, unrighteous anger sometimes. All of us do. Our soul and our body, like when we said yes to Jesus, our spirit became a new creation, Galatians 2.20, 2 Corinthians 5.17, old is gone, new has come, but my body and my soul are still unredeemed. And so there's a fight going on inside of me to believe that blueprint because my body, when I look in the mirror, just being honest, doesn't show me the Taj Mahal, right? If I'm staring cancer down uh, the barrel, right? The, my body's not telling me Taj Mahal, it's saying shack, when I feel anxiety leaning in on me, that anxiety is telling me Shaq, not Taj Mahal. And so it's easy to agree with that because I can see it, I can feel it. God says, trust the blueprint. How do you know what the blueprint says? Get in. How do you know what the blueprint says? Go spend time with him. Why does discipline hurt? Because your body and your soul are fighting against the very plans of God for your life. 